Welcome to Witness, a ministry of Covenant Presbyterian Church in Jackson, Mississippi. Join us in person for worship each Sunday at 9.30 a.m. For more information about Covenant, including discipleship and mission opportunities, visit us at www.covenantpresjackson.org. Last week, Josh introduced us to the book of Colossians. He reminded us that, though we call it a book, it was actually a letter written by the Apostle Paul while he was imprisoned in Rome around the year 60 or 61 AD, so less than 30 years after the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And Paul wrote this letter to a church that he had never met, the Christians living and worshiping together in Colossae, which is in modern-day Turkey. Awareness of the historical context is helpful for understanding the message. Unfortunately for a lot of people, their knowledge of the Bible is limited to select quotes, short verses divorced from their original context, which encourages people to think of the Bible merely as a collection of inspirational sayings to lift your spirits or give you direction in your life. Now, of course, the Bible can do those things, but it's so much more than that. The Bible contains eyewitness accounts of miraculous historical events. It reveals to us the will of God. It makes known to us his work in creation. It contains everything that we need to know to live a life honoring and pleasing to God and to prepare us for eternity with our creator. All scripture as Paul wrote elsewhere, is God-breathed and useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness so that we will be equipped for every good work. And the entire Bible should be consulted by those who seek knowledge of the will of God. I say this because it's a tragic irony that people naturally crave knowledge and wisdom, and yet they will look for it almost anywhere else than from the source of all knowledge and wisdom, God, who created the heavens and the earth. And this isn't a problem unique to the faithless. Adam and Eve believed in God, but they craved the fruit of knowledge of good and evil so that they could be their own arbiters of truth and not need to rely on God for knowledge. Christians today can just as easily be seduced into looking for secret knowledge Ideas that are found outside of the ordinary means which God has provided. His word, the Bible. Now, Paul didn't know the Christians living in Colossae. He had not met them. He received a report about them from Epaphras. And the report was filled with good news about the church, but there was a growing concern. Some of the believers in Colossae were intrigued by secret knowledge. And false teachers were misleading them with things that sounded spiritual, but were not sound in doctrine. A knowledge, wisdom, and understanding are good things to desire, but they were looking in the wrong place for it. True knowledge of God isn't a secret. It's been made plain in Jesus Christ and faithfully taught by the apostles. Nevertheless, Paul takes the time to write to them and gently correct their error. And we benefit from his letter today. 
because what he wrote from that prison cell was inspired by the Holy Spirit. And so it is the very word of God. Paul began the letter with typical letter writing conventions and an expression of thanksgiving. Our verses today are an extension of his well wishes for the church, and they prepare the way for some of the most wonderful teaching on the divinity of Jesus Christ found in the Bible. That's a promotion for next week. Uh, But, of course, today's verses are equally inspired and instructive. They give insight into Paul's prayer life. Remember, Paul has never met these Christians, but he prays for them. Many times, we find ourselves praying for people we don't know, and that's a good thing. God uses prayer to accomplish his will. I do not know the president personally, but I pray for him. And since I don't know the particulars about his day-to-day job, I pray generally over him, that God would grant him wisdom and favor because those things are good for the people living under his authority. It's good to pray for missionaries and other ministry leaders and for Christians around the world. But it can be a challenge to know how to pray for someone when all we know is their name. Well, these short verses in Colossians can guide your prayer life for people even when you don't know their name. The heart of the request is the one thing that Paul knew they wanted most. And so he prayed for it first, that you may be filled with the knowledge of God's will, and that you'd be filled in all spiritual wisdom and understanding. Knowledge is good, but accumulating knowledge and wisdom for the sake of being the smartest person in the room does no good to yourself or others. We are meant to use our knowledge and wisdom. The meat of Paul's prayer is focused on the practical uses of knowledge, which I'll cover in three parts. The first comes from verse 10. Our knowledge and wisdom from God are meant to bear fruit in our lives. We are to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, which means that ethics and morality are not optional aspects of the Christian life. James put it bluntly in his letter, writing, be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. That's easy to hear the word. You're you're hearing it now. You can read it and study it just about whenever you want. But unless you are doing it, unless you are obeying it and living it out, you're deceiving yourself. I once heard Francis Chan give an excellent illustration of this. He he compared it to telling your children to go clean their room. Sometime later, you go in to check on their progress and you find the room as messy as ever. Now, would you be pleased if your children look up to you and say, oh, we heard what you said. In fact, we, we love what you said. You said, go and clean the room. Well, we've been doing a word study on room. You'd be amazed at how comprehensive it can be. And we told our best friend what you said word for word, and you're going to love this. With their help, we wrote a song with those words, and we're going to get together to sing it every week. I recognize that the illustration is a bit silly, but is that not what we do? Would any father be pleased if his children memorized his commands, but didn't obey them? We might say that we want 
knowledge and spiritual understanding and wisdom. We might even take the time to study God's word. But are we willing to change our lives according to it? Well, that's the heart of Paul's first request, that they would walk in a manner worthy of the Lord and bear good fruit. Now keep in mind that though this is a command, it's also a prayer request, which means that God, by his Holy Spirit, is the one who enables you to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord. It's not something achieved by just trying hard. And so we should approach the commands of God prayerfully, trusting him to help you obey. And it's good to always do this, but it's especially important in times of temptation, in moments of weakness, when you want to do something that you know is not pleasing to the Lord. If you take a moment to pause and pray, you will often receive the help you need, which isn't typically new knowledge or understanding, but the simple willingness to lay aside your will for God's, which is what prayer is all about. And so the activity of prayer refocuses your desires and helps you align them with God's, which is the key to living in a manner worthy of the Lord. Well, the second point of application from Paul's prayer for them to be filled with knowledge is so that they will be strengthened to endure trials with patience and joy. Now, nobody likes trials. In fact, we try hard to avoid persecution and trials. We know intellectually that the Lord wants us to share our faith, but our fear of public opinion paralyzes us. We're afraid to offend. We might even think we're being wise by keeping our faith and morality to ourselves, as if doing so preserves our Christian witness from the stain of being labeled judgmental. But knowledge, wisdom, and understanding aren't gifts to help us avoid all conflict and trials. I'll grant that wisdom at times can keep us safe from stepping in a trap, but not all traps are avoidable for the faithful. When Jesus Christ was the most faithful. He was full of spiritual wisdom and understanding, and the world hated him for it. And so if we're united in Jesus Christ, and if we live in a manner of Jesus Christ, then we should expect to share in the suffering of Jesus Christ. The world will hate us just as they hated Jesus, which is exactly what Jesus said would happen. And when it does, according to Paul's prayer, we need strength, endurance, patience, and joy to protect us. Now, that last one might seem strange. How are we to remain joyful in trials? The ancient Stoics esteemed patient endurance. A stoic put in stocks would have borne the discomfort calmly and without complaining, but he wouldn't do it joyfully. Whereas Paul and Silas, when they were unfairly put in jail in Philippi, were singing hymns to God all night. They were joyful because they knew that just as they shared in the suffering of Christ, they would share in the victory of Christ. Another great example of endurance and strength comes from church history. Polycarp, who was among the most revered church fathers because he was the last remaining person to have known an apostle. According to Irenaeus and Tertullian, Polycarp had been a disciple of John, 
His unusual sounding name means much fruit, which he displayed to the end of his life. The Roman emperor at the time required everyone to take an oath and sacrifice to the Roman gods. And in that day, there was no such thing as a religious exemption. Now, many Christians would say the oath and offer the required sacrifices without meaning it to avoid trouble. But Polycarp would not do that. Before long, he was betrayed to the authorities, who found him easily enough that he could have escaped, but he refused, saying, God's will be done. And those who arrested him were amazed by his age and steadfastness. And he was brought before the proconsul, who tried to persuade Polycarp to apostatize, saying, Have respect for your old age. Swear by the fortune of Caesar. Reproach Christ, and I will set you free. Which sounds like a pretty good deal. But Polycarp refused, responding, Eighty-six years have I served him, and he has done me no wrong. How can I blaspheme my king and my savior? Indignant, the proconsul responded, I have wild animals here. I will throw you to them if you do not repent. And call them, Polycarp replied. It's unthinkable for me to repent from what is good to turn to what is evil. I'll be glad, though, to be changed from evil to righteousness. Well then, if you despise the animals, I will have you burned. To which Polycarp replied, you threaten me with fire, which burns for an hour and is then extinguished. But you know nothing of the fire of the coming judgment and eternal punishment reserved for the ungodly. Why are you waiting? Bring on whatever you want. And so he did. And from the letter we have that tells the account, Polycarp declined to be fixed to the stake with nails, saying, leave me as I am. For he that gives me strength to endure the fire will enable me not to struggle without the help of your nails. A modern translation of the account describes his final moments poetically. They simply bound him with his hands behind him like a distinguished ram, chosen from a great flock for sacrifice, ready to be an acceptable burnt offering to God. He looked up to heaven and said, O Lord God Almighty, the Father of your beloved and blessed Son, Jesus Christ, by whom we have received the knowledge of you, the God of angels, powers in every creature, and of all the righteous who live before you, I give you thanks that you count me worthy to be numbered among your martyrs, sharing the cup of Christ and the resurrection to eternal life, both of soul and body, through the immortality of the Holy Spirit. May I be received this day as an acceptable sacrifice, as you, the true God, have predestined, revealed to me, and now fulfilled. I praise you for all these things. I bless you and glorify you, along with the everlasting Jesus Christ, your beloved Son. To you, with him, through the Holy Ghost, be glory both now and forever. Amen. The prayer of Polycarp beautifully connects the knowledge he has of God to his ability to endure such hostility from man. So much so that even during a trial that he knows will end in his death, he is able to conclude his prayer with an offering of thanksgiving to God. 
Which brings us to the third point of application from Paul's prayer for the Colossians. He prays that their knowledge, wisdom, and understanding would lead to thanksgiving. The Christian life is meant to be one of thanksgiving. The way we live, the fruit we produce, the strength and endurance we have are all ways in which we show our gratitude to God. But for what do we give thanks? The gospel. Look at verses 12 through 14 again. God has qualified those who believe in Christ to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. And so far in this sermon, you've been exhorted to live as becomes a follower of Christ and to endure trials with patience and joy, a daunting task. But the good news is that you don't have to do those things in order to be saved and earn God's favor. You don't need to do them so that God will like you. He demonstrated his love for you while you were still a sinner. Christ died for you before you could do anything to merit God's love. We love him because he loved us first. And so we do those things he calls us to as a way of showing our gratitude for what God has done. In other words, our good works and ethics are an expression of our thankfulness for the gospel. Paul uses the language of deliverance to describe the gospel. The deliverance language harkens back to the great stories of God rescuing his people out of Egypt and again out of Babylonian captivity. Well, we too have been delivered from the dominion and power of darkness. When Jesus was in the garden of Gethsemane, he said to the people that had arrived to capture him, when I was with you day after day in the temple, you do not lay hands on me, but this is your hour and the power of darkness. Satan and his realm of darkness had their hour, but like the flames that Polycarp faced, it could only last so long and then it was over. God wins in the end. The crucifixion exhausted the power of darkness. There was nothing left to stop the resurrection of Jesus. Satan and his domain were defeated and we, who are in Christ by faith, have been transferred to a greater kingdom, the kingdom of God's beloved Son, Jesus Christ. And Satan has no jurisdiction in the kingdom of God's Son, so we don't need to fear the kingdom of darkness. We've been rescued from darkness to light, from slavery to freedom, from guilt to forgiveness, from the power of Satan to the power of God. Through union with Jesus and by prayer, we can be filled with the knowledge of God's will and filled in all spiritual wisdom and understanding because those things belong to Jesus as the prophet Isaiah foretold in our scripture reading saying, and the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of of the Lord. May you be filled with these very things 
so that you can live a life of gratitude to the glory of God. Amen. Thank you for tuning in to Witness, a ministry of Covenant Presbyterian Church in Jackson, Mississippi. 